Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, last night, President Donald Trump in a State of the Union address said that he will meet with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un on February 27th and 28th in Vietnam. To help us preview what might come out of that summit is Eli Lake. He is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Eli, thank you for joining us. What do you expect will come out of this summit between the U.S. and North Korea in February? I think there's a very good chance you will see um, a statement, a kind of declaration of peace, which is uh, similar to statements that have been made before, but uh, would pave the way to a formal peace treaty that ends the Korean conflict. Today, there's only an armistice. And I think you may see a new policy where you would see the relaxation of sanctions on North Korea in exchange for some progress on uh, what's called denuclearization or disarmament. But not the old policy, which is that no sanctions would be lifted until they were, there was verifiable disarmament from North Korea. So, Eli, are we any closer to denuclearizing North Korea? Well, especially, I, I don't think we are, especially a, a recent report from the UN Security Council is correct that says that, you know, there's a, there's, they've not, that the North Koreans have not only continued their uh, development of uh, weapons programs, but are, are continuing to sell it to other rogue actors. Um, and, you know, the leaders of the U.S. intelligence community also said that they do not expect that Kim Jong-un would ever verifiably give up uh, his nuclear arsenal um, completely. And this follows a pattern. We know that dictators... Uh, you know, develop nuclear weapons in, in a way as a kind of insurance policy, because if you have a credible threat to incinerate a city like Seoul or other neighboring cities, then uh, you will not be invaded like uh, someone like Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi. So, Eli, who has the leverage here, the U.S. versus North China, I mean, North Korea? It just doesn't seem like anything has materially changed over the years. And I'm just wondering, other than the fact that we are the president is meeting with Kim Jong-un, which is historic in and of itself. What's changed? Well, the, the Trump administration, the president himself, would say that the young leader of North Korea wants to bring economic prosperity to his country and that this is a source of leverage because the United States is a wealthy country and it can help with that. But that defies, in a lot of ways, uh, everything we know about Kim Jong-un. Remember, you know, Kim Jong-un murdered his uncle and had, uh, I think, his half-brother murdered and, and and has done terrible things in terms of his climb to power and has acted in a, in a ruthless manner that um, suggests that if he really is interested in the kinds of things he needs to do for prosperity, um, that would mean opening up his society and opening up his economy in a way that would be ultimately a threat to him. So I don't think that I don't, I don't believe the, the happy talk that he's interested in this sort of economic development, but the answer that I think the, the White House would give you is that you know the U.S. can provide North Korea with the means to get their country out of you know extreme poverty. I want to shift gears a little bit beyond North Korea, uh, because when we talk about national security, I have to wonder what's going on with Venezuela and how much is this becoming a sort of solidification of an alliance between China and Russia versus the United States and other developed markets? Well, that's a very good question. And certainly Venezuela is a country where you've seen both Russia and China 
play the role of sort of the big power uh, and development. But, you know, China last year began to call back its loans from Venezuela at a moment when, you know, its economy was cratering as it is now. Um, and its oil sector has been so depleted because of its mismanagement and the corruption of the Chavez and Maduro regime. Um, and in many ways, the Chinese might be looking at their in initial investments in the earlier part of this decade into Venezuela as a pretty bad bet. Um, I think that the Russians have a different kind of interest because they see that Venezuela could potentially play the role at, that Cuba played in the Cold War, which is a source for power projection in the hemisphere. Um, so, you know, I think their interests align here. I, I know that the U.S. intelligence com community leaders last week said that they feared a kind of Russo-Sino uh, alliance against, uh, you know, the rest of the sort of more Western democracies. But uh, I still think that there are a lot of sort of sources of tension there. And it could very well be a classic mistake that the U.S. intelligence community, many in the U.S. intelligence community made in the Cold War, where they believed that, you know, two countries that followed the same communist ideology would be natural uh, allies when in fact you know there are there are rivalries between them that border uh is uh has never really been quite so quiet so in a lot of ways i would say that you know we still have to sort of wait and see but there is a different point which is also worth making which is that we see it all the time that autocrats and autocratic regimes will band together when there is a democratic threat to to the, to those regimes so it's in the interest that of China and Russia to see that the uh, democratic tumult that we're seeing now in Venezuela fails, because that is that kind of same thing can be a threat to them at some point. Wait, later hold on, on one second. Are you saying that right now China is very much an autocratic com uh, country and that its alliances are going to be with other autocrats, period, the end? Well, China is an autocratic country and its alliances are you know, largely with other autocratic countries. And we see the China, I mean, we see it with Russia, for example, protecting Bashar al-Assad and the UN Security Council. Um, and I think you'll see more and more with China, the same kind of behavior. I mean, I think that... So Eli, what do you, what, what do you think are the next steps in Venezuela? It's been kind of calm since Guaido assumed his position as, I guess, president number two or president number one. What do you think are next steps? Well, we're seeing more and more pressure. I mean, the, um, most of Europe has now come out and recognized Guaido as the interim president. Uh, I think that there will be more and more pressure now through humanitarian aid that you know will be delivered, and we'll see. Will the, the the real question here is if Maduro gives an order not to accept or to block humanitarian aid to his starving population, will the military follow that order? If if Maduro gives an order, which, by the way, apparently he didn't over the weekend in the face of mass demonstrations for his military to fire into the crowds, will the military follow that order? That's really where the, the rubber hits the road. And I think that there is an understanding that, you know, he can have his generals, as he did last week, show up in a press conference saying that they're still loyal to him. But if the order is given, how many of the middle and lower ranking members of the Venezuelan military will follow it? They are suffering uh, the same kind of privations as the rest of uh, ordinary Venezuelans. And so in that respect, I do think that Maduro's days are numbered. Just real quick, in one word, which is a bigger threat, North Korea or Venezuela? 
Well, North Korea is a bigger threat because they have nuclear weapons. Sorry, North Korea. <laughs> Eli Lake, thank you so much for being with us. Eli Lake, we always love reading your columns for Bloomberg Opinion uh, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Uh, read his columns. They are fabulous. He covers uh, national security. Well, we are right in the middle of media industry earnings season right now. We had 21st Century Fox report uh, pretty decent numbers this morning. And, of course, the Walt Disney Company last night out with their numbers, which are also slightly better than expected. The stocks are both kind of unchanged here this morning. So to help us dive into kind of what we're seeing in the media landscape, uh, let's bring in Porter Bibb. Porter Bibb is a managing director at Media Tech Capital Partners. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. And Porter's been covering the media business Close to forever, I'll put it that way. <laughs> so, you. Porter, as you kind of look at the landscape today, and again, we had those results uh, just recently from Fox and, um, and and Disney. We have some more to go. You know, it looks like investors are stepping back and saying, gee, I have to make a bet here whether some of these big media companies can really survive in a world where there's Netflix and Facebook and Amazon. So let's just take a look at Disney. You know, probably the biggest and best positioned, arguably, What's your view on Disney and how they play out over the next several years? Well, Bob Iger in his conference call uh, yesterday said uh, direct-to-consumer is his highest priority. He's putting Disney Plus, his main streaming service, uh, on on fast forward. They're going to show in April uh, a demo to the world to see how it flies and hope to launch by the end of this calendar year. Um, but the real bombshell that Disney has is not just Disney Plus and not their 60% ownership of Hulu, which they probably will uh, end up owning 100% of, buying out Comcast and AT&T, the minority shareholders, so they can control the whole thing. The bombshell is ESPN Plus, which is going gangbusters, has 2 million paid subscribers, but where the real money tree is going to start shaking down on Disney is when online betting goes across the country, which it's going to do. There are three states now where it's legal, and all of a sudden you're going to find in the next couple of years 50 states legalizing online betting, and who has the most live sports and a, just a gigantic archive of better sports information. It's, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's one way that Disney diversifies away from what Netflix has yes, in, addition exactly. to their, in addition to their other original yeah. content. My question is, we talk a lot about Netflix being sort of the big uh, elephant in the room. Is Netflix going to remain an independent company? Well, it, <laughs> um, I, I may be in the minority, but since the day that Netflix launched, I said it was an unsustainable business model. Um, they, they don't make profit. They and have, you stand by that? I, absolutely. And they have gigantic, almost $18 billion of off-balance sheet obligations. And, and the reason that they don't have to show those is because they don't, they don't come due and payable until they air the, the content that they've paid over, overpaid for. So they're, they're going to face serious competition already from Amazon, from Disney, from uh, everybody else who wants to get into the streaming business. And I, somebody is going to have to pick up uh, Netflix and take them over. And who will that person be? Well, a lot, lot of analysts are positing 
Apple. I'm not sure Apple is the only buyer. I, I think that uh, Verizon may have to do something because they're they're looking at uh, uh, being dumb pipes for the ne- for the future if they don't have some content to uh, create multiple revenue streams for subscription revenue and advertising. Uh, it could be Microsoft, which has uh, Xbox distribution network tens of millions of Xboxes all over the country, all over the world, actually, and no content except games. So Microsoft, well, let's take a look. I mean, Netflix has a $150 billion market cap. So obviously, uh, only a handful of companies out there could possibly do that. Are you one of those folks that says that, gee, as we... The landscape today in the, in the media consumption world, it's Time Warner, you know, Comcast, right. Disney, Viacom, and so on and so forth. Are you one of those folks that says, boy, if I look five years into my crystal ball five years down the road, it's not those companies. It is Amazon. It is Microsoft. It is Netflix. Are you one of those people? And if so, sorry for the two-point question, what happens <laughs> in the traditional media landscape? Do we have to have another massive wave of M&A? It vaporizes. Uh, we're, we're the whole media industry right now. Um, every ten years or so, uh, everybody starts screaming, "Content is king." Well, that's the scream today. Content is king, and the the distribution means that you reach out to the consumer through uh, is really irrelevant. It's all going digital. It's and five years from now, it'll be virtually all mobile. So uh, the old legacy media, linear television, cable is not going to exist in any great shape or form. All right. So in that vein, what major media company that currently exists will be no longer in five years? Well, one of the most vulnerable right now is Comcast because they're such a big um, cable linear television, Universal Pictures, and NBC. Um, the, the major networks, they're trying to go digital right now and trying to walk away from their core businesses on, on uh, network television as we know it today, but it's not going to work. You don't think their broadband business is what's going to be the future of Comcast? And I think the thing that will save Comcast as as a business is their ability uh, to deliver 5G content, and it's probably going to be mostly somebody else's content. Porter Bibb, it is wonderful having you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Porter Bibb is managing partner at MediaTek Capital Partners, has been in the media space for decades, was the first publisher of Rolling Stone magazine uh, talking that's, about... That's my favorite part of the... I, I love it. There's so many favorite parts. Uh, talking about shifting industries and, uh, and just Amazon... This year has seen a significant rally in the price of crude, but there are still some larger existential questions hanging over the oil market. Joining us now is Jim Crane, Energy Studies Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, joining us from Houston. He's also the author of a new book, Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf. Jim, I think one really pressing question for oil markets recently has been, is OPEC on its deathbed? No, OPEC is uh, is alive and kicking uh, and getting bigger by the signs of uh, uh, you know the talks that uh, have been uh, uh, revealed recently with Russia and the uh, you know the OPEC plus countries that uh, that are now caucusing 
uh, frequently with with Saudi Arabia and the other OPEC uh, and the real OPEC members. Um, a lot of that is because of U.S. shale. So you know this rise in in U.S. oil production uh, has really undercut OPEC's market power. So to get it back, uh, it brought in Russia, and now we've got the you know two of the three largest global oil producers, Saudi Arabia and Russia, working together. Uh, so I think uh, yeah, OPEC is still a, a going concern for sure. So P- Professor Crane. When we think of OPEC in the Middle East, I mean, it's obviously oil has transformed that region of the world so dramatically over the last uh, 75 years. Um, you know, obviously tremendous oil reserves there, despite the fact that the U.S. is now coming online with a shale. What are some of the downsides that you are concerned about in that region um, as they continue to progress? Well, so this basically that's the, the you know the whole crux of my book. So it's a, basically a history of energy consumption. You know, these countries were extremely poor uh, when oil was discovered. They didn't use any oil at all, which was great for the the companies that uh, that were producing that oil. They could export every bit of it. Uh, and over the past oh forty or fifty years, they've gone from zero to leading the world in oil consumption. Uh, you know, which also happens to be their main export commodity. So that uh, that trend, that continued growth in energy demand, was threatening their economies because you know they were diverting ever more exportable crude oil into their economies, and it was also threatening their political systems. You know, these are autocratic political systems that are based on patronage by basically giving away stuff. So they were giving away too much uh, in in terms of energy uh, domestically, and they needed to. Get rid of these subsidies that they uh, that they put in place in the 1970s, uh, and they they're start it, it's starting to happen. They're starting to 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 raise energy prices. Saudi Arabia is leading the way, uh, but now uh, you know sort of the, the latter stage of my book, uh, I look at how climate change is likely to affect these countries, uh, and that's a a whole new uh, existential issue, sort of a lose lose situation, if you will, for them. Uh, you know, if climate action succeeds in reducing carbon emissions, that will probably affect oil demand in their economies. Uh, if climate change, if, if the world does not succeed in reducing oil demand, uh, you know, the raising, you know, rising temperatures, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf are going to be, you know, on the front lines of climate victimhood uh, with some of those cities along the Gulf Coast possibly getting to be uh, too hot and humid for you know, the human, for humans to withstand. Uh, so by, you know, sort of the end of this century. So you're talking about how uh, sort of the, the existence of oil and the production of oil in the Middle East really gave rise to the current political uh, regimes and also to the uh, capital there. At the same time, this is going to be a problem for them since this is how they've established uh, the entire infrastructure of how they operate. I'm just wondering, you know, you, we started with talking about OPEC and how uh, it's broadening out and still alive and kicking, but is the center of focus moving away from the Middle East because of some of these challenges and because of uh, the fact that it needs to have a bigger critical mass to fight the U.S. shale presence? I think you know Saudi Arabia and Riyadh is still the you know where the critical mass of OPEC lies I mean the Saudi oil ministry and the Saudi minister himself um, you know is is still the key personage within OPEC who uh, still calls the shots 
Um, you know, uh, uh, the the other countries in uh, in the Gulf, you know, the the other monarchies tend to caucus with Saudi Arabia in within OPEC. So there, you know, it's still. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think you know Saudi Arabia is still the, the the heavyweight within OPEC. We're talking with Jim Crane, Energy Studies Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. Uh, Jim, you know. To the extent that these, we know some of these Gulf uh, uh, area countries are trying to diversify their incomes, um, divert, diversify their economies. How successful have they been at attracting foreign capital and actually achieving some of that diversification? Well, you've got the the first successful post oil economy in the Middle East now in Dubai, right? So Dubai's GDP is you know about three percent or less now from oil and gas. So so Dubai's done it. They've they've developed a you know economy based on financial services, on tourism and conventions, and on shipping and logistics, uh, and on real estate, right? Those crazy real estate projects we've seen with their the you know the world's tallest building and the you know the islands in the uh, you know shaped like palm trees in the Gulf. Um, you know, there's a lot of other real estate projects that are you know maybe a bit that make a bit more sense that they've uh, they've managed to convert into a non-oil economy pretty successfully also airlines um but now you've got the you know the other gulf cooperation council countries the other monarchies have not followed dubai's example until recently they're starting to do uh the same thing so a giving dubai a bunch of competition in in airlines and in real estate and tourism um but they need to go a lot further than this i think for for oil derived economies diversification is really Something that you, they really have to be dragged, kicking and screaming into, because it, you know these these sectors are just not as profitable as oil. I mean, if you can produce oil for five or ten bucks and sell it for fifty or a hundred dollars, you know that's a you know th- that level of profit is just not going to be available in pretty much anything else. So uh, it's a tough sell diversification, but unfortunately for them, it is vital, uh, yeah. and that is what they've got to do. Jim Crane, thank you so much for being with us. Jim Crane is Energy Studies Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, based in Houston. His new book is Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf. A very interesting kind of reflection at a time when there is this pressure about global warming and about the use of fossil fuels. And as a lot of these Middle Eastern kingdoms do try to diversify their investments and their resources uh, away from oil. Well, of course, President Trump delivered his State of the Union address last night, uh, touching on a number of topics to help us parse through what the president said and the Democratic response. Uh, we bring in Lonnie Chen. Uh, Lonnie is the David and Diane Steffi Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, also a director of domestic policy studies and lecturer in the public policy program at Stanford University, calling on the phone from lovely Stanford. So. Lonnie, a lot of topics covered in the State of the Union address last night, maybe light on a detail, but certainly a message that was consistent with his past messaging. What did you take away from the State of the Union address last night? Well, I I thought the president actually sounded a number of unifying themes during his speech. Obviously, there were elements of it that were classic Trump, uh, claiming credit for avoiding nuclear Armageddon with North Korea was chief among them. But fundamentally, as a, as a speech, I think the president, uh, from a policy perspective, 
focused on a few items that ought to get support from Republicans and Democrats, prescription drug pricing, infrastructure reform, uh, boosting economic growth. Those are all themes that Republicans and Democrats, at least in theory, should agree on. So as a general matter, I would say the president's speech sounded many more unifying tones than might have been present in his recent rhetoric. Okay, so uh, Lonnie Chen, this actually does not necessarily jibe with what a lot of other people are saying about the speech in that uh, President Trump did not seem to throw Democrats a bone when it came to the wall and negotiating about avoiding another government shutdown. Why do you disagree? Well, on immigration, that's an area where obviously the president feels very strongly that he needs to continue to placate and and uh, promote policy that's popular with his base. But bear in mind, the current process is largely in the Congress's hands. There's a negotiation going on. We'll see where the president comes out on it. But as a general matter, if you look throughout the speech, I think there were many more times when he tried to bring people together than he tried to drive them apart. Now, with respect to immigration, that's obviously a very controversial issue, one where I think there was more divisiveness. But we've come to expect that from the president. Immigration is a hallmark issue for him and obviously is kind of central to his political coalition. So it's understandable, not excusable, but understandable the degree to which he uses immigration as an issue to divide uh, Republicans and Democrats. So, Lonnie, I guess the rubber will meet the road, uh, if you will, really over the next week or so as we approach the uh, uh, deadline for a potential second shutdown. Was there anything you heard in the address last night or even in the Democratic response that would lead you to believe uh, that there is a path forward to avoid a second shutdown? Well, the, the only question, I think, will be whether the negotiators who are talking about this issue in Congress now, the, the conference committee that was convened to end the last shutdown, the question is whether they can achieve resolution that's going to be satisfactory to the far left and to the far right. I think that's the, that's the bigger issue. Uh, as far as a path forward, I think that the path forward is actually relatively straightforward from a policy perspective. We all know the sorts of things that Democrats and Republicans would want. The question is whether there's a political will there to avoid a second shutdown. And I would argue that the first shutdown was, was considered to be so distasteful by both sides that there will be a very strong push to to avoid a shutdown. And frankly, if it comes down to a question of whether there will be a shutdown or if the president's going to act in some way unilaterally, my sense is that the president will act unilaterally and Congress will do what it can to avoid a shutdown. That's not the optimal solution from a policy outcome, but it's not a uh, an unlikely outcome given where things are as we sit right now. So you're a former advisor to the Marco Rubio and Mick Romney campaigns, and I'm wondering, uh, putting that hat on for a minute, how would you view Stacey Abrams' response, the Democratic response to President Trump's State of the Union, uh, where she talked about uh, voter fairness and she talked about the middle class and the plight there? How would you advise uh, President Trump to respond? Well, these are the themes, you know, Stacey Abrams' response, echoed the themes that we've heard from Democrats consistently over these many years since the 2016 campaign. It, it, it was very much a preview of coming attractions in 2020. For the president, he has one of two courses, pretty fundamentally. One is to, to triangulate, and I think you started to see some of that last night, triangulation around issues uh, relating to health care, for example, and infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier. The other pathway is for the president to hold firm to some of these more divisive issues like immigration. 
and to really focus in on that as we move toward this 2020 election. Bill Clinton sort of showed the way. He had, you know, Bill Clinton had very low approval ratings entering uh, this year of his presidency in much the same way as President Trump does. And Bill Clinton elected to essentially co-opt much or part of, at least, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans' agenda. So if President Trump tries to co-opt some of the issues that Democrats care about, yeah. there is historical evidence to suggest he could be successful in 2020, rather than sort of holding firm to what, what one might consider a base strategy. Lonnie Chen, thank you so much for being with us. Lonnie Chen is a research fellow at the Hoover Institute, also director of domestic policy studies and lecturer in the public policy program at Stanford University, joining us from California. Uh, We appreciate uh, that look at the State of the Union address, as well as the Democratic response heading into the 2020 elections. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.